All right, well, it's that time once again. Let's go ahead and grab our Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 39 as we continue together looking at the life of Joseph in a series that we've entitled, The Lord is With You. The Old Testament is invaluable to you and I who are believers in Jesus Christ. And again, one of those blessed invaluable gifts that God has given us, we often neglect the most. Paul the Apostle made it clear in Romans chapter 15, verse 4, that the Old Testament was given to us for two purposes. Number one, for learning. And number two, to help us with patience and comfort, leading us to hope. So all that we read in the Old Testament, we should be, number one, looking to see what we can learn from it, and number two, allowing it to generate hope within us concerning the future in front of us. The story of Joseph is so unique. As one wrote, he said that every life could be uh, a novel in and of itself, and the novel of Joseph's life is incredible. He's a man that has been identified with words such as integrity, forgiveness, steadfast perseverance. And as we find Joseph today, we don't know how much time has passed since his brothers threw him into a pit and he was then sold into slavery to the Ishmaelites, taken down to Egypt and purchased by a man named Potiphar, who was the chief of the guard, an Egyptian, who we'll see and be introduced to in just a moment. But again, we started this whole journey with Joseph with a series of two dreams of promise, that one day his entire family would bow to him. Now, when they heard about this dream, you can imagine how they reacted, and you would be right. They weren't pleased about it at all. For Joseph was already Jacob's favorite. It was going to be Joseph that appeared to be the one that Jacob had decided to succeed him with the birthright. And now we pick it up in chapter 39, verse 1. We don't know how much time has passed, but we now find that Joseph is in Egypt, hundreds and hundreds of miles from his home. His family had betrayed him. His father thinks he's dead. And now we find that he finds himself in slavery and serving an Egyptian family. And yet, we will discover at this point in time, the Lord is with him. Let's pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 39. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, an Egyptian, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. Potiphar was a man of importance. He was a man of prestige and power there in Egypt. Joseph now finds himself in servitude to Potiphar and Potiphar's family. 
Most believe that Joseph is somewhere in his mid-twenties at this time. Being displaced as he has been, you can understand from his vantage point how he may have felt. Certainly, thinking that his brother's last act towards him was one of betrayal. Thinking that his father believes him to be dead. Now finding himself in Egypt, distant from his family, no possible means of communication, and now finds himself in slavery to the captain of the guard, who most likely was not only in charge of a military division there in Egypt, but also ones responsible for the execution of judgment, including execution itself. What a precarious position for Joseph to be in. What a place that you could certainly understand if he became uh, full of despair and hopelessness. The Bible doesn't tell us exactly what was going on through Joseph's mind at this time, but we do have indications from other places in Scripture where we find that individuals have found themselves displaced by the Lord for specific purposes and plans. It's interesting that when I read Joseph, I also think of Daniel, who at a very young age was carried away by the Babylonians into Babylonian captivity, becoming one of the chief advisors to King Nebuchadnezzar. I think at the end of the Babylonian captivity, when uh, Nehemiah, was serving the king as a cup-bearer. I think of Jeremiah when he wrote to the Jewish people concerning their conduct within captivity. When Jeremiah wrote in Jeremiah 29, 7, and Jeremiah said, And seek the peace of the city where I have caused you to be carried away captive, and pray to the Lord for it. For in its peace, you will have peace. Now, Joseph didn't know that this is where God would want him, where God would have him, as Nehemiah and Daniel did. And yet, Joseph decided to act in a manner of integrity. Though Joseph wasn't absolutely certain of his circumstances, he was certain of his relationship with God. And even though he had been displaced in the manner in which he had, he still chose to honor God with his life. He could have just thrown in the towel. He could have just become an Egyptian, saying, to heck with my family, to heck with my father, to heck with God. I don't need any of that. Look at where it's got me. I'm nowhere. I'm a slave in Egypt. And yet Joseph did not respond that way. His integrity would not allow him. And he decided to honor God where he was, even though he didn't understand at this point why he found himself in the circumstances in which he had. I think that's a lesson for you and I. I think you and I need to realize that God has us here for a time such as this. 
And unfortunately, I'm seeing individuals getting angry at God because our situation in our culture is changing so rapidly. Christianity is no longer favored here in our nation. And Christians are being persecuted for standing up for righteousness, either in the form of cancellation, losing their job, etc. And you may be tempted to say, what's the point of it all? Why should I even continue on in righteousness any further? Why should I stand up and fight the battle when it doesn't seem like anyone else is willing to do the same? And yet God looks at us as individuals and we have a responsibility to Him regardless of our circumstances to continue in righteousness. Now I agree that we should pray for our elected officials. We should seek peace. We should look to influence and to encourage coming alongside of individuals who don't see things the same way we do. Allowing ourselves to be a reminder to them of the presence of God when they don't have God's presence within their own lives. But there also comes times, as it, as it occurred with the Jewish people when they were in Egypt and a Pharaoh came who did not know them and began to slaughter the male children that the midwives said enough is enough and began to spare the male children. I think we should always first and foremost look for a peaceable solution. I think that we as Christians should look to influence our local officials, praying for them, encouraging them, getting involved. But society over the course of history at times comes to a point where we as Christians must say enough's enough. And there are certainly issues today in our society that we have to say enough is enough. And we need the resolve, not in arrogance, Not in pride, but in grace, mercy, and love, which I believe are much stronger motivators for resolve than anger can be. We do what we do because we love people. Many of you this week may have seen that the governor of California is using Bible verses to justify abortion saying that we are called to love our neighbors as ourself. Individuals who have adopted a pro-choice position are teaching that God is more concerned about our choice, meaning our ability to choose, than He is about the abortion itself. That could not be farther from the truth. We need to understand and to know that our society now is requiring us to stand up and to say enough. Look to to influence peaceably. But there may come a point where we have to say enough's enough. But in the case of Joseph, and I want to focus on this. Concerning Potiphar, one wrote this. He said, 
This group that Potiphar belonged to was an elite, courageous band of rugged men. The Jewish historian Alfred Eidersheim described that group by telling us that Potiphar was the chief of executioners. No matter what the title you give him, Potiphar was nobody to fool around with. He was a man of seasoned military experience with power over life and death. So you can only imagine Joseph saying, Lord, I don't get it. How did I get here? But notice what happens next. In verse 2, the Lord was with Joseph. And he was a successful man. And he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. And his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord made all he did to prosper in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and served him. Then he made him overseer of his house And all that he had, he put under his, that is Joseph's, authority. The Egyptian people were incredibly superstitious people. It is estimated that the Egyptians had about 2,000 deities that they needed to observe. You think you got it tough. And as a result, they were always wondering by the circumstances that they found themselves in, if the gods were happy with them or mad at them, did they, you know, did they tick one of them off because they forgot about him because he had 2,000 to remember, etc. But as God's hand was on Joseph, the house of Potiphar began to be blessed. And Potiphar began to realize that there was something unique about Joseph. And here is where God, being with Joseph, helped Joseph stand out by prospering anything that Joseph applied himself to. But notice with me that the word serve is also there. It didn't seem that Joseph looked to rebel, but to serve the individual that he found himself in captivity to. And God blessed him, and Potiphar noticed it. To the point that Potiphar allowed him to become overseer, another word would be steward, of everything that was in Potiphar's house. Everything. All of his wealth. All of his material possessions. The whole nine yards. What a unique position for Joseph to be in. What an awesome responsibility it was. Joseph realized that God was with him, even though circumstances would have dictated otherwise. But notice what happens next. As we come to verse 5. So it was from the time that he had made him overseer of his house, and all that he had, that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. And the blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in the house and in the field. Thus he left all that he had in Joseph's hands, and did not know what he had except for the bread which he ate. Now it's interesting. 
He was so trusting of Joseph that he didn't even realize. I, I don't know what I got in my checking account. I don't know how my portfolio is doing. I, I don't know how the, where my material possessions are. I assume my Ferrari is still in the garage. He trusted Joseph with everything. Now, think about that for a minute. A slave now finding himself with the responsibility of all of this prosperity. Being who he was, Potiphar was undoubtedly a wealthy man. And the Lord allowed Joseph favor in his sight, in Potiphar's sight, and all was relinquished to Joseph. Notice this. Now in verse 6, there is a very interesting conclusion Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. Well, where is this story going? Translated out of the Hebrew, it means Joseph was a good-looking guy. And he caught the attention of a certain woman within the home. And thus, in verse 6, He left all that he had in Joseph's hands and did not know what he had except for the bread in which he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form, meaning he was fit, good-looking, and it came to pass after these things that his master's wife cast longing eyes on Joseph and she said, lie with me. (laughs) Well, here we go. One writer stated very clearly that with prosperity often comes vulnerability. If you look through the history of the Jewish people, it is always at times of prosperity that they fell the greatest. The prosperity gave them a false sense of security. Uh, They believed that the prosperity always indicated God's blessing. And as the nation began to move away from God and still have and experience that prosperity, they misinterpreted it as that God was pleased with their actions. The prosperity then became such a problem that they began to think, well, maybe God isn't needed any longer, to the point where, of course, they went and worshipped other gods with all fervor and passion. Prosperity can be very dangerous. In the book of Ecclesiastes, as Solomon writes to his children, he is concerned that his children growing up in prosperity had never learned how to handle prosperity. They never really understood the value of a dollar. It was always there. They always had it. They always uh, were provided for and supplied for. They didn't realize what it meant to work for it. They didn't know how to handle it once they received it. And in Ecclesiastes, he starts talking about his inheritance and saying, I don't know if my children are prepared to receive the things I'm about to give them. He was concerned that the prosperity that he was going to pass on, and of course, as you know, Solomon's wealth was exceptional. It was extravagant, and yet, 
He was afraid that the prosperity was going to corrupt his children even more. We've all grown up in a very prosperous land. Compared to many around the world, we don't know what it really means not to have. And one of the things we must be very careful about is that that prosperity never becomes an idol in our life. And the one of the ways that we do it is like Joseph, seeing all that we have be given to us by God and we are mere stewards of what we have. Joseph didn't own the materials that he managed. He didn't have, uh, it, the finances were not his to spend on his personal wants. He stewarded the house of Potiphar. You and I must realize that all that we have been blessed with we are mere stewards of, to glorify God with first and foremost. Now, it's not wrong to be wealthy. It's not wrong to be blessed materially. As long as we govern those blessings and those blessings do not govern us. That we govern those things with a heart of generosity, a heart of stewardship, the realization that what I have is a gift from God to be used for His glory. We must be careful that our children don't see this prosperity as a mere entitlement, but as a blessing from the Lord. One Scottish writer named Thomas Carlyle, a Scottish essayist, wrote, Adversity is something hard upon a man. But for one man who can stand in prosperity, there are a hundred that will stand in adversity. The temptation that accompanies prosperity are far greater and far more subtle than those that accompany adversity. As another one went on, Chuck Swindoll, he wrote, But remember, with great success comes greater measures of trust, which leads in inevitably to greater times of vulnerability. At such junctures, we may expect temptation in the days of prosperity. It is there that the temptress lies in wait, and he encourages us to beware. For she had cast longing eyes upon him, approached him, and said, Lie with me. For the temptation has reared its head. And now let us see how Joseph responds. In verse 8. But he refused. The word refused there in the Hebrew means no way. I'm not going there. Now he was a young man with all of the same drives that every young man has. He was separate. He was alone. It didn't seem like anybody was watching. He was given trust of the whole entire estate. And you could see how Satan would exploit his weakness. You could see how Satan would want to lead him astray at that moment. Taking him off the course in which God had plotted for him. But he refused. Our first reaction to temptation should be that refusal. I'm not going there. 
Temptation is the mode by which Satan always approaches us. It is the one gun in his arsenal. At the two most critical points in the history of man, it was temptation that Satan used to draw man away from God. Of course, I'm speaking of the first occasion when he came at Eve in the garden, drew her away by twisting God's word, alluring her, promising something more, deceiving her. But then the second time occurred with our Savior. And where Adam failed, Jesus succeeded. Of course, when Jesus, after fasting for 40 days, was led out into the wilderness, it was again Satan coming after Jesus, using the Word of God incompletely. He was using it uh, perversely and through deception. Jesus, of course, being the author of the Word of God, could easily rebut it, but he was in a weakened state. So Satan accompanied uh, comfort in the temptation by asking him to eat. You can cause any one of these things to become food. But Jesus said, the food that I have is every word that comes from my Father. Satan will exploit your natural weaknesses. That's what he does. So he came at Joseph and tried to exploit one of the natural inclinations of a young man. Sexual temptation. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Look, my master does not know what is with me in his house and has committed all that he has to my hand. Potiphar doesn't even know he's so trusting of me. There is no one greater, verse 9, in this house than I, nor has he kept back anything from me but you because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Two points I want you to see that Joseph articulates for us. Number one, he saw that he had a personal responsibility because of the trust that Potiphar had given him and he wasn't going to violate that trust. He has committed all of these things into my hands. He doesn't even know what he has. And I won't violate that trust. I won't violate that relationship by taking you for a moment of pleasure. But then notice with me, he says that I will not do this great wickedness and sin against who? God. Even though Joseph has been thrown into a pit by his brothers, sold into slavery, taken to Egypt, now serving as a slave to a captain of the guard, His relationship with God is first and foremost. Regardless of my circumstances, I am going to stay true to my Lord. I'm going to stay true to the God of all creation. I'm going to stay true to Him. For you and I, what guards our hearts in a world such as this Of course, the transforming and the renewing of our mind through God's Word. But that is accompanied with something 
that's even stronger, and that is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. I am going to refuse temptation because I love Jesus too much. I'm not going to fall. I'm not going to bring reproach upon His name. I'm not going to allow others to blaspheme as I fall into temptation or I conform into this world. Joseph was conscious of God even though his circumstances would have may, indica- may have indicated to him that God had abandoned him. Right? Because how could God be being in an act of being thrown into the pit or sold to the Ishmaelites by his own brother? Brought to Egypt. How could this be God's will? How could it be God's will that I find myself a slave in Potiphar's house? How could all of this be God's will? But no, that wasn't Joseph's attitude. His attitude was, I find myself in this place, and yet I will honor my God. What a lesson for you and I to learn today. Verse 10. And so it was as she spoke to Joseph day. Now this wasn't a one-off. She was trying to wear this guy down. Day by day that he did not heed her to lie with her or to be with her. If Satan doesn't succeed the first time, he'll come at you again. And again. And again. To wear you down. To bring you into submission. To cause you to fall. And to choose the pleasure of the moment over your love for God. And then after falling, he'll leave you there for dead. That's what Satan does. He comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. Joseph endured this temptation day by day. And yet, he continued to resist. Verse 11. But it happened about this time when Joseph went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was inside, that she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. Okay, this woman's got a problem. I mean, there is something up with her. I mean, I think her and Potiphar need to go talk to somebody, right? I mean, this is, I mean, he must have been a really good looking guy, Joseph. None of the guys were in the house, so she caught him. She said to him, lie with me, verse 12. But he left his garments in her hand. But he left his garments in her hand and fled and ran outside. And so it was when she saw that he had left his garments in her hand and fled outside that she called to the men of her house and spoke to them saying, See, he has brought us into us this Hebrew to mock us. He came into me to lie with me. And I cried out with a loud voice. Wow. Pretty incredible. The number one escape plan of escaping temptation is run away. Joseph says, you can have the clothes, I'm out of here. This is how certain he was. This was to the degree of resolve that he had. 
He wasn't going to lie with her. He wasn't going to do it. And sure enough, what happens? A woman scorned, rejected, finding the clo- his clothes in her hand, says, this is the opportunity to frame him. I didn't get what I wanted. Now she's mad at the world, mad at him. And so she lies about it. She frames him. She said, oh, he came in to mock us. He came in to lie with me. You know, it just keeps getting worse for Joseph, doesn't it? And yet Joseph was still faithful to the Lord. But now, Potiphar comes home. In verse 17, I'm sorry, verse 16, so she kept his garments with her until his master came home. Then she spoke to him with words like these, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you brought to us came in to mock me. It's Potiphar's fault. Do you notice that no one ever wants to take responsibility for their actions? Here you have this woman, a a temptress, we don't know how old she is, trying to capitalize on a moment of opportunity with a younger man. He rejects her for the sake of his relationship with God. And it's not her fault. It's someone else's fault. It's your fault, Potiphar. You brought him in to me. Then he did this. And now look where we are at now. You did this, Potiphar. It's your fault. So, verse 18, So it happened as I lifted my voice and cried out that he left his garment with me and fled outside. Here's the proof right here. He left his garment with me. So it was when his master heard the words which his wife spoke to him, saying, Your servant did to me after this manner, that he was angry and aroused. And then Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, a place where the king's prisoners were uh, confined, and he was there in the prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him mercy, and he gave him favor in all the sight of the keeper of the prison." And the keeper of the prison committed to Joseph's hand all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever they did there, it was his doing. The keeper of the prison did not look into anything that was under Joseph's authority because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it prosper. Chuck Swindoll wrote again, if I may read to you. Imagine what must have been going through Joseph's mind at this point. Shortly after he was incarcerated, he was not only innocent, he had resisted blatant temptation over and over again. All the man knew at this painful moment 
was that he had done what was right and had suffered wrong for it. Time dragged by, days turned into months. He was again unfairly rejected, forgotten, and totally helpless. The psalmist tells us a little bit about Joseph's prison stay. In Psalm 105, verses 17 through 19, the psalmist writes concerning Joseph, He sent a man before them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. They hurt his feet with fetters. He was laid in irons until the time that his word came to pass. The word of the Lord tested him. From Joseph's perspective, which we talked about last week, perspective is key. Joseph undoubtedly couldn't connect the dots here at this moment. But in hindsight, as we read this account, we begin to see what God is actually doing, don't we? As we begin to read through these passages, we start to see a pattern that anywhere that Joseph went, He was trustworthy enough for all things to be committed to his hand and to rule over the affairs of Potter's house, Potiphar's house, and the prison. Now, from his perspective, he appears just simply to be faithful to what is in front of him. From God's perspective, God is preparing him to govern a whole nation. Do you see it? Do you see it? God will always prepare His people before He uses His people for greatness. It's a pattern that we find throughout the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And as we see Joseph being prepared in the way that God needed to prepare him, in very difficult, humbling circumstances, in circumstances that each and every one of us would have maybe question the goodness of God, the fairness of God, suffering the injustices that Joseph appears to be suffering, it would be easy to conclude that God is not with us. How could He be if these things are occurring? And yet, He was with Joseph the entire time. I'd like to leave you with four things this morning, if I may. Number one, we, Joseph reminds us that we too today may feel like we are strangers in a strange land. Our nation is changing. The culture is changing around us. We are looking for the answer and how to respond. Through the changing of our culture, insecurity and uncertainty have begun to fill our minds and hearts. And it would be easy to think Amongst this pressure that we are alone, let me tell you that as Joseph had the certainty of knowing that God was with him, so do you have the certainty to know that God is with you. That He'll never leave us nor forsake us. I remind you of the promise that He made to His people in Deuteronomy 31.8. And the Lord, He is the one who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. So do not fear, nor be dismayed. Meaning insecure, uncertain, bewildered, questioning the goodness of God at this moment. 
But wherever we find ourselves, we also have the responsibility to live fully to the glory of God. Regardless of where we are, regardless of of what circumstances we find ourselves in, if it be the pit, if it be Potiphar's home, if it be the prison, we have the responsibility of glorifying God first and foremost, no matter what occurs. Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians 10.31, Therefore, whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That's our responsibility. That's our mandate. Third, we must at this time resist temptation. We must resist the temptation of the moral slide of our society. We must resist the temptation in conforming into the image of this world. We must resist the temptation to become like the world in hopes to to reach the world. For Jesus said it himself in Matthew 26, 41. He said, watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. For indeed, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Can we all say amen to that? Paul said it this way. Those things I don't want to do, I do perfectly. And the things I want, I want to do, I don't do at all. For Paul went on to say in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. He said, no temptation has overtaken you except such as common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Now, if you like to write in your Bibles, write next to that first, these two words, just run. Or if you need a little bit of pop culture, Involved in your Bible reading and learning, may I remind you of a very wise individual from 1994? Run, Forrest, run. Just run away. Get out of there. Don't even mess with it. Refuse it. For James tells us in James 1.12, Blessed is the man who endures temptation. For when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. And number four, lastly and in closing. You may have done everything right and still find yourself in difficult circumstances. In fact, your circumstances may have become worse. And you don't see the immediate blessing this side of heaven. And because of that, you may feel frustrated. You may just want to give up, throw in the towel. But let us remember that we store for ourselves treasures in heaven. That first and foremost, our allegiance is to Christ. For we are children of the kingdom of God. And as children of the kingdom of God, no no matter where we ever find ourselves, we have this uh, promise this morning that the Lord is with us today.